back, everyone, as we continue our studies in the book of Exodus. And this week we find ourselves in Torah portion, Vayakel. Uh, now, normally, this portion and the next, which is Pekudei, are read together on the same week. But this year, in 2022, we find ourselves uh, in a leap month. We have a Dar 1 and a Dar 2. So these two portions are read on separate weeks. But I'm going to tell you right now, we'll be dipping very heavily into Pekudei, which takes us right up to the end of the book of Exodus. Vayakel is um, the opening, uh, one of the opening words in the portion. Uh, if you look at Exodus chapter 35, verse 1, it says, Vayakel Moshe et kol edat b'nei Yisrael. Vayakel means to gather together, to assemble. Moses assembled the entire assembly. Often he would assemble the elders or he would meet with a group, but how in the world he assembled the entire people of Israel and spoke to them at once, I have no idea. But the last three letters of this word spell the word kahal, and it's very tempting to take time to talk about this word, but I've talked about it so many times in the past that I'm going to assume you know what the word kahal means. But in a nutshell, kahal, to assemble, is the Hebrew equivalent of ekklesia in Greek, which is the word we translate as church. So um, ekklesia, kahal, mean exactly the same thing. And it's unfortunate that in our Bible translations, we translate ekklesia in the New Testament scriptures as church, but then in the Hebrew scriptures, where you find kahal many more times than you do ecclesia, uh, it's never translated as church. So there's an inconsistency here. Now, kahal is not a religious word. It simply means to assemble, to call people together. And in the Greek scriptures, ecclesia is used for holy purposes, good purposes. But you also see a mob scene in Acts where the the uh, idol worshipers, they assembled, they, and the word ecclesia is used there. And also the word kahal. In fact, over in Exodus 32.1, it says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people, they kahaled, they assembled themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. So, again, there are no religious words in the original Hebrew and Greek of the scriptures. Um, they're all street vernacular. And um, unfortunately, we have assigned religious English terms to many of these very normal vernacular words used in, the, in ancient times. But I want to move on to uh, just a, a kind of a review Two weeks ago, we covered Torah portions Teruma and Tetzaveh. And this is where Moses was on the mountain receiving the instructions for the construction of the tabernacle. And many of you emailed me and texted to express how much you enjoyed that teaching. And it's uh, really gratifying to me to know that people are getting as excited about the tabernacle as I have been because it is the illustration portion for everything God wants to teach us. So we found those instructions in Torah portions, Teruma and Tetzaveh. Then last week, we had the unfortunate incident of the golden calf. 
Tisa, and we see incredible failure, incredible brokenness, and the the tablets were shattered, and it just looked like utter, total failure. But now this week and next, we have Vayakel and Pekudei, and we see not only the instructions repeated to a great degree, but the work is completed, and the tabernacle is constructed, and we see new tablets brought down, and um, God puts the train back on the tracks. There's a pattern here of instruction, then failure, and then completion throughout the scriptures. When you look at Yeshua's life, he came and he instructed and he lived a life. And uh, what an amazing, amazing example he set for us. But then it looks like it ends in utter failure. He's uh, framed. He's, uh, he has a, a mock trial, a bogus trial. He's executed as a criminal. He dies and he's buried. And it looks like utter total failure, total brokenness. But out of that, God still completes his work. And you know what? He does the same thing in your life and in mine. And so many times there's a, an experience in my life where it seems like, well, I really messed up. That's totally broken. God can't use me anymore. But he comes back and says, no, now I can use you finally because you've been broken. And that is the pattern. It's the pattern in the scriptures. It's the tabernacle. Uh, the, the that's a new term. I'm going to use that because we are all tabernacles, aren't we? And the pattern is given to us in scripture. So um, we are broken as well, and that is what makes us usable uh, in the eyes of God. You know, a, a, a broken spirit is something God simply will not reject. And uh, brokenness and that humility that comes through those series of breakings in our lives, they're imperative for us. They have to happen. And God can use us all the more afterwards. Now, I find it interesting that when you look into the uh, passage, you find 15 construction materials. You find this exact same list twice. You found it uh, a couple of weeks ago, back in those earlier Torah portions. You find it again in this week's Torah portion. There are 15 construction materials, gold, silver, copper, techelet, which is the sky blue dyed uh, wool, purple wool, scarlet wool, Linen, goat hair, red ram skins, tachash skins, acacia wood, oil, spices, then stones for the ephod and stones for the breastplate. And that should be plural there, not singular. And I just want to say a word about the tachash skins. You know, this word is translated all over the place. I, I think it's the King James that says they're porpoise skins. Other translations will say badger skins, and there is one tradition that it was unicorn skins, which would explain what happened to the unicorns. And people work themselves up trying to figure out what kind of animal did these skins come from. Personally, I couldn't care less. It was important for us to know God would have told us. But it's not important for us to know. We shouldn't waste time on it. What I want to know is what's the spiritual significance of this word tachash, this odd word. And it's found only in relation to the tabernacle for one of the coverings over the roof, the tent of the tabernacle, 
with one exception. There's one other place where the word is used. It's over in Ezekiel 16.10. Ezekiel 16.10. It's in your notes. God says, I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with tachash. I made sandals of tachash. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. This is the key to understanding what this is all about. The only other time this term is used in the Bible is in Ezekiel 16.10, and it refers to a type of leather used for sandals. Now we know the significance of this word. Because the covering of the tabernacle was the takash skins. And when you think of that as being sandal leather, it's as if God's saying, the tabernacle is the sandal of your invisible God. And every time he takes a step, the tabernacle moves a step, moves to another camp. And as you see the tabernacle move, it's like God putting his foot down and leaving an impression in the world. So that is the key to me. That gives me the significance. And as beautiful inside and as glorious as the tabernacle was and God's Shekinah glory dwelt there and as wonderful and significant it was compared to everything else, compared to the, um, the new Jerusalem to come, it's just the sandals. It's just the lowest part. We can only try to imagine how glorious it's going to be in the future when God makes his permanent home with us. So anyways, when you think of Takash, think of sandal leather. Now, why 15 construction materials? Well, the rabbis, who uh, love to discuss such things and ask such questions, they say that these 15 materials correspond to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You think, well, how can it correspond to Genesis 1.1? It's because Genesis 1.1 is made up of exactly 15 syllables. Breshit bara Elohim et ha shmaim va et ha aret. It's 15 syllables. And they say the, the creation of the world and these 15 syllables, that's a footnote compared to the creation of the tabernacle where God's presence is going to dwell. God created the world as a home for man. But the tabernacle is a, is a home that we create for God. And he says that's even more significant. It's as if the world is just the stage and the raw materials from which we can build the tabernacle, God's house. And um, so we want to give so much attention to the creation of the world. And, and it is important, of course, and significant. But we often forget what it's pointing toward, and that's you and me as tabernacles of God's Spirit. That's the miracle, and that's life, and that's what we're here for, to make ourselves into a home for God's presence. Now, I'm going to take a little shift here. We're going to come back to our Torah portion, but something I've brought up many times in the past is that when you find God's presence in the world and in the scriptures, you'll many times find fire and water dwelling together in shalom, in peace. 
And you may not notice this unless your attention is drawn to it. I encourage you to, uh, as you read your Bibles over the years to come, watch for this. Watch for fire and water, not to be mutually exclusive, but to dwell together in peace. In the physical world, they can't dwell together in peace. You pour water on fire, it puts out the fire. If you... uh, place a fire under a vessel of water, it boils off the water. One destroys the other. But when you find these two opposites dwelling in peace, you know that God's nearby. So I just want to give you some examples, and there are many more than this, and I'm always discovering new ones, but let's make sure we get on the same page. Um, Here we go. One of the key ones that opened this up for me is back in Exodus 9 during the discussion of the ten plagues. And the seventh plague, and seven is always key in the list, the seventh plague was fire and ice. The hail fell from the sky and in its midst burned fire. And in the introduction to this plague, God says, this time I'm sending all my plagues against your heart. It was during this plague that God is referred to as Adonai Elohim. And if you recall the 13 attributes of mercy, Adonai, yod is his characteristic of mercy. Elohim is his characteristic of strict justice. And we find the two dwelling together in peace. And this is the one plague where, you, where Pharaoh repents and he calls Moses, asks him to forgive him and, and asks God to forgive him. It's a very interesting plague. And in Revelation chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 Uh, John describes his encounter with Yeshua or Yeshua's angel on the island of Patmos. And he describes him, says his eyes were like a flame of fire. And we know that the eyes are the window of the soul. So the essence of Messiah is fire. And our God is a consuming fire, as we learn in our Torah portion. And uh, not this Torah portion, but previous one, when God's fire came down on Mount Sinai. It says his feet were like burnished brass refined in a furnace. But when he spoke, what was that like? His voice was like the roar of many waters. So out of his eyes you see the flames of fire, but when he speaks, it's like the living waters. Later in Revelation, chapter 15, verse 2, we have a description of God's throne room. And it's said that his throne was on a glassy sea mixed with fire. Again, God's presence, where he's enthroned, you have a sea that is just just as, as calm as a sheet of glass. There's not a single ripple. Yet in the water, fire is shooting through. John the Immerser came and in Matthew 3. says, I immerse you with water. But he referring to Yeshua, will immerse you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. We must be immersed in both, and we'll see more about what that means in a moment. How about in Proverbs where we're told, if your enemy is thirsty, give him water to drink? What happens when you do? For you will heap burning coals on his head. It's as if Solomon is telling us, when you are kind to your enemies and you uh, answer a request, a need that they have, 
It's as if God's presence shows up. The fire and the water are there. It'll begin to work on the outside and on the inside. I love these two passages. They go together as a pair. In Daniel 7, verses 9 and 10, Daniel says, As I looked, thrones were placed. Now, it's very important. You get that word thrones there. Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. So he's sitting on the throne. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. Now, this is the day of judgment that we see described in Daniel 7. But in Revelation 22, verse 1, we see the new heavens and new earth. Judgment is past, and God is now with his people. He's with them. They're his people. He's going to be their God. They're together forever. And then it describes his throne there. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God. Before it was a stream of fire. But now, it's the river of the water of life. So, it's the same throne, the same God, but the fire now becomes water. And we know that the world was cleansed in ancient times during the days of Noah with a destruction of water, but Peter tells us in the future it will be destruction by fire. And, of course, the greatest example of fire and water existing together is the human being. You, me. Our bodies are made predominantly of water. Some say 80, 85% water. And yet you and I have a a temperature. should be around 98.6, if I'm correct. And that means there is slow combustion going on. You are burning calories. Calories are a measure of heat. And we put fuel in our bodies, and our cells burn those calories. There's a a chemical kind of oxidation taking place, and there is a very kind of a slow, low-grade fire going on. When you're ill, the temperature goes up, or the temperature can go down. You can be freezing, or you can be burning up. But when we're in balance, when our bodies are healthy, the water and the fire are in balance, and there's shalom in our bodies. There's peace in our bodies. So why am I going over all of this? Well, the sages say in, in the Midrash Rabbah, in the commentary on uh, Midbar, the book of Numbers, says the Torah was given in the presence of three things, fire, water, and wilderness. Fire, water, and wilderness. And why is wilderness thrown in there? Because in the wilderness, there are no distractions. There's nothing there, just a lot of sand and rock and sun and heat and sky. And, you know, when you read about people going to seek God, whether it's Yeshua going into the wilderness to be tested, or David in the wilderness where he wrote many of his psalms, we find people going to the wilderness, a place where there's no distractions, where it's very silent and still. There's not much to bring pleasure to the five senses and to the body. In fact, it's a dangerous place. But it was in the wilderness that God gave his word. 
And um, in fact, the name of the book of Numbers, Bamidbar, means in the wilderness. And the word wilderness, Midbar, contains the words Devar, letters for Devar, which is the word for word. Now, in Numbers 31, verses 22 and 23, we find something interesting that's a key to this fire and water discussion. And we'll be bringing it back to the tabernacle in just a moment. When the warriors came back from battle, they would have all kinds of things that they had brought, that they had captured from the enemy. And the, uh, the priest would tell them what to do with these things. It says only the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, the tin, and the lead. These are all metals. Everything that can stand the fire, you shall pass through the fire. And it shall be clean. Nevertheless, it shall also be purified with water for impurity. <clears throat> and whatever cannot stand the fire, you shall pass through the water. Now this begins to give us an insight into how fire and water relate to us. When we see water in the scripture, it generally refers to the physical, because our bodies are mostly made of water. And if you have a container of water and you tip it, the water is going to go down, not up. But if you light a candle, you have a flame going, the flame seeks to rise, to go up. Water goes down, fire goes up. When we cleanse ourselves, we use water to wash our bodies. And as John the Immerser said, I immerse you in water. I'm just taking your bodies and putting them in the water. But the one who comes after me said, will immerse you in the Holy Spirit. Now that's spiritual. That's something that's internal. In the Holy Spirit and with fire. The internal, the soul, the spirit, these are things of fire and they seek to go up. These are things that are sources of light and they seek their source, which is our God who's a consuming fire. And whenever you find fire in scripture, it's always a picture of God's holiness and his presence. Whether it's Moses at the burning bush, <clears throat> excuse me, or Elijah being taken up and a chariot of fire, or the fire that rested on Mount Sinai, fire that rested on the heads of the apostles. Um, wherever you see fire, it's God's holiness, his cleansing fire. Now, we don't cleanse our bodies with fire. They don't do well in fire. So whatever cannot stand the fire, you shall pass through the water. So fire is something that cleanses the inside. Water is something that cleanses the outside. Now, in Hebrew, each letter is a word. Each letter is a, a quantity, a number. But each letter is also a picture. This is one of the things that makes uh, the study of Hebrew so rewarding because there's so many levels and, and ways you can approach a Hebrew word or just a Hebrew letter. And we're going to look at two particular letters today. And the first letter, the one on the right, is a sheen. Sheen. It makes the sound of a, an S or a sh, an SH. 
And uh, it is referred to by the rabbis for centuries and centuries, referred to as the letter of fire. And when you look at it, it actually looks like a flame because it's got the prongs going up, shooting up. Now, the word sheen actually means tooth, tooth. And um, some people say, well, it looks like the roots of a tooth, you know, like an upper tooth. And uh, that's also a possibility. But what do teeth and fire have in common? They consume. So I guess you could say the physical picture is that of a tooth that's consuming, but its, its spiritual essence is fire. And the rabbis always refer to sheen as the letter of fire. Now on the left, we have the letter mem. And mem is the letter that, whose name means water. In fact, if you spell out the word water, it's ma'im, mem yad mem. So uh, the letter mem's name comes from the word for water. You notice it has an opening as well, but its opening is at the bottom because water goes down, but sheen, the openings are at the top. Fire goes up. Now when we take the letter for fire and the letter for wire, shin and mem, and put them together, they spell the word name, shim. When we refer to God in using his name yud heh you'll often hear people say Hashem, the name. And what is a name after all? In Hebraic thought and in the scriptures, a name is a person's essence. It's who they are. It's their character. This is why names sometimes are changed. God will change someone's name because he's making a profound change within them. And he wants their name to reflect their inner essence. And we know in Revelation that we will get new names. Our parents gave us names, and some are better than others. But uh, God's going to give us a name that reflects who we are. It's a unique name. Each person's name will belong only to them. And as we learn God's name, it's more than just a spelling lesson because God's name, yud heh vav we don't know it's pronounced. We do know this, it is a verb. And as I often say, I want to remind you today, when you pronounce God's name, you don't pronounce it with your mouth. We don't know how. We pronounce it with our actions, with our lives, because his name is a verb. We do his name. And when we live out his name, we're pronouncing it and proclaiming it to the world. Remember again that shin, fire, is always a picture of the spiritual. And water is a picture of the physical. In fact, our planet is like two-thirds or three-fourths water. And our essence, our name, who we are, is how these two blend. We're souls, but we interact with the physical realm and we interact with the spiritual realm. But often we're not in peace with the two. But as we mature and grow, we should learn to operate in these realms with, with effectiveness, with skill, with wisdom. And we should feel comfortable in both worlds because we are always combining the two. You know, the kingdom of God is when 
as Yeshua prayed, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's when God's will is done here, the same as it's done there. When that happens, the kingdom of God has arrived. Yeshua also said the kingdom of heaven is within you. In other words, in each one of us, this should be a place where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Because we can choose to do his will here in our bodies, in the confines of our bodies, and in the realm of our influence, in our homes, in our work, in our walk. And if we're doing that, God's kingdom is here walking around inside of each one of us. But when we do not elevate the mundane to the holy, when we don't introduce the spiritual into the physical, things are out of balance. We don't have shalom in our lives. We don't have peace. And we're not living up to our name of who we're to be. Now we take the word name, and here we see the shin in this next word. And if we take the letter mem and spell it out, like we see here, mem yad mem, that's the word maim, we come up with the word shemaim, which is the word for heaven, or heavens. Whenever something ends in a neem, it has a plural ending. Whether it's singular or not, the ending is plural. So sometimes we see maim translated water or waters, and we see shemaim translated heaven or heavens. So heaven is a place where fire, the sheen, and the ma'im, the water, are in perfect harmony and peace. If you want to experience heaven on earth, we need to walk in the spirit. We need to be cleansed by God's fire within and live a clean life externally. And we need to be ones who engage the physical and the spiritual as people of wisdom. If you want to know what that looks like, just look at Yeshua. He was physical, he engaged the physical, and yet he always walked in the spirit. Everything had spiritual significance. Fire and water dwelt together perfectly in our Messiah. Now, something I find interesting is that when God breathed into Adam's nostrils, it says he breathed into his nostrils the neshama of life. Your translations say breath, but we don't really have a good English word for this word neshama. Uh, neshama is the spiritual side of the soul, but we're just going to use the word neshama. Now look at what is at the heart of the word neshama. Nun, shin, mem, hey. What are those two middle letters in neshama? This breath that God breathed into us. There it is, shin and mem, fire and water name. But you might be wondering, what are these two outside letters, the nun and the hey? Well, nun and hey together spell a word. It's the word Noah, but not the name Noah. Uh, Noah's name was Noach. This is not the name. But when we take these two letters, they spell the word Noah, which is found only in one place in the Bible. It appears only one place. And that place is over in Ezekiel 7, verse 11. Listen to what it says. Violence has grown up into a rod of wickedness. None of them shall remain, nor their abundance, nor their wealth, neither shall their Noah among them. And if you look at your translations, it says preeminence. 
The word Noah means preeminence. And when God breathed his neshama into, uh, I'm trying to talk and spell at the same time, preeminence, E-N-C-E. Okay, there we go. When God breathed his neshama into Adam's nostrils, his God's name was placed within him, and Adam was given preeminence over the creation. It didn't last long. But that is what makes up the word neshama, the essence of what God intends for us to be. And I keep using this word shalom, peace, because if we're walking in the spirit and in the physical, it, it, together in wisdom, we're walking in the spirit that we don't fulfill the lust of the flesh, but we engage the physical in the spiritual and wise way, there's shalom. And there you see the word shalom. And look what the first and last letters are. The first letter of Shalom is Sheen. The last letter of Shalom is Mim. And let me just make a little note right now. You, uh, I don't want you to be confused. This letter Mim and Neshama and this letter Mim at the end of Shalom are the same letter. But Mim, like water, is something that changes and flows. And Mim is one of the five letters of the Hebrew alphabet that changes shape when it appears at the end of a word. It is the same letter, but it just firms up, it closes up and changes when it's at the end of a word. So we see that the word shalom, we see fire at the beginning, water at the end, and they're dwelling together in peace, because that's what shalom means. In modern, modern Hebrew, there's also word shalim, hashalim, which means completion. And the word peace always has this this feeling of being complete. When something's reached completion, it's like, oh, we can rest. The work is done. There's peace. And uh, we're all trying to reach that place of, of completion. But what are these two middle letters? Lamed and Vav. If we take these two middle letters by themselves, they spell the word lo. Lamed Vav, lo, which means to him. If you want to know the secret of shalom in your own life. It's when you take spirit and body, the fire, the water, all of your resources, all of who you are, and you live it to him. And when we live it to him, we have true shalom in our lives. The fire and the water, the spiritual and the physical, dwell in complete and utter peace. So as I was going through this, I just thought, well, you know, what do the words, well, how about the word to me? Because Yeshua invites everyone to come to me. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Well, the word uh, to me in Hebrew is li, lamed yud. And what I find interesting about this is that Lamed has numerical value of 30, and Yud has numerical value of 10. If we add 30 and 10, it equals 40, and that just so happens to be the numerical value of Mim, which means water. But if we multiply 30 and 10, instead of adding them, we multiply, we get the value 300, which just so happens to be the numerical value of Shin, which is fire. We give our lives to him, 
when he invites us, come to me, then um, we find again the fire in our lives and the physical, the water in our lives coming into shalom, coming into peace. We see his shim, his name being proclaimed through our lives. And again, if you take the word shalom and you make it hashalim by putting the lamad yud in the middle, it means completion. And you will never reach completion unless you give yourself fully and completely to him. Okay, I know your, your brain probably needs a break, and this is a good place where you might want to pause and go back and review this. And that's the beauty of recording these, because you can always go back, slow it down, pause it, and look it up, and make sure that I'm not making mistakes. And at the end of the visuals, end of the notes, I've included a chart here that has all 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet and their numerical values, so you can play around with words as well. But let me just give you a warning. Don't go crazy with this. Some people absolutely just go over the edge when they start looking at these things. So we want to reach balance. That's always the key word, balance. Um, And Solomon did say in the book of Proverbs that it's the glory of God to hide. The word is sater there from where we get the word Esther. Um, To hide a matter. And it's the glory of kings to search out a matter. I want us to think about this for a moment. As we were going through this, if you're one of these whose heart leapt, because you thought, how amazing this is, that these things about fire and water and shalom and shim, God's name and how it all fits together, something that leaps, that's because you're experiencing a little bit of God's glory. You're, you're looking behind the veil at glorious, glorious things. But he didn't put these things on the surface for us. The glory of the kings, for you and me, is to search them out. And as we search out these things, God plays with his children, with us, this game of hide-and-seek. He hides his glory, and he says, come and find me. And I think when Moses, last week in that Torah portion, said, I want to see your glory, he said, no one can see my face and live, because his face is equated with his glory. He hides his face, but we are told to seek his face, to seek his glory. But it's a hidden thing, and he allows us to be initiated into these things as his children. Say, come and look for me. It's this amazing cosmic game that we play with our creator, a game of hide-and-seek. Now let's get back to the tabernacle. The question is, after this discussion of fire and water, if fire and water dwell in peace and harmony where God's presence is, then, since God's presence dwelt in the tabernacle, shouldn't we see fire and water dwelling in peace there? And do we find this when we look at the description of the tabernacle? And the answer is yes. So let's go to our model of the tabernacle. Make sure you listen to the teaching from two weeks ago where we walked through this and looked at many of the the names and meanings and and, uh, the parts and pieces so that you're completely familiar with this schematic of the tabernacle. So if not... 
pause here, go back, listen to that, and then I'll meet back with you, uh, back with you here. But from this point on, I'm going to assume that you're familiar with the plan of the tabernacle. Now recall that the outer court, this area out here, is the physical. This area here paints a picture of the soul, and the smallest area, the Holy of Holies, this cube, cube-shaped room is the spirit. Okay, that's our spirit. So let's begin out here in the outer court. First we come to the altar. This square is the altar. What's on the altar? Fire. So we'll just put the letter Shin there. You walk past the altar, you come to this round laver. What's in the laver? Water. So I'll put a mem there. So already in the outer court, we see fire and water. We see God's Shin, his name. He's introduced himself to us. But what is the purpose of fire and the purpose of water? Cleansing. And uh, when you put something on the altar, it leaves this world. It goes up. And the water was there to cleanse the hands and the feet. But we see fire and water. And here's how the cleansing applies to us. We are invited to be living sacrifices. To give ourselves fully and completely to God. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beg you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, not to be a dying sacrifice, not to be suicidal. But what goes on the altar? The inner man, the soul. The soul can endure the fire. The body cannot. The body has to be immersed in the water and cleansed by that. So the altar and the labor represent this purification. And I know you've heard me say before, but in case you haven't, whenever a sacrifice was brought, we'll be discovering this in Leviticus as we approach that book, the sacrifices were always skinned. The hides of the animals never went on the altar. Only what was inside the skin went on the altar, went up to God. So when Paul invites us to be living sacrifices, he's saying, I want you to take everything inside your body. That's your soul and your spirit. Give it to God. Give it to him. Now, this is left behind. The leather and the hide of your, your life is left behind. It needs to be immersed in water. But what did the priest, the, the hides became the property of the priest. What did the priest do with all these hides? They wrote out God's word on it. The hides are left behind. It became... Walking Torah scrolls. That's us, a walking Torah scroll. And in our lives, we should be proclaiming God's truth, God's word. A passage that comes to mind as we look at this is Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. It's amazing to think that David wrote this psalm before the temple was built. He never lived to see the temple. But in Psalm 24, 3 and 4 says, Who shall ascend the hill of Adonai? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands, that's the physical, and a pure heart, that's the spiritual, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So if you want to go into the holy place, and this next area, this enclosed area, is called the holy place, you have to go through the fire and the water. You have to have clean hands and a pure heart, or else 
no admission. You know, you see those signs on stores, no shirt, no shoes, no admittance. Well, maybe there's a sign we should put in front of the tabernacle. You know, no clean hands, no pure heart, no admittance, because that's what's required. That's the price of admission. So let's go into the holy place now. And where do we see fire and water there? Well, of course, there's fire on the incense altar. And we talked last time, two weeks ago, about the bread that went on the table of showbread up here on the north side was made from grain that had to be crushed. The incense was made from spices that had to be crushed. And the menorah was lit with olive oil and the olives had to be crushed. Everything in here is a product of crushing. But all of them have the fire applied as well. Fire to bake the grain into bread. Fire to make the incense give forth its aroma. Fire to make the oil bring forth light. But let's look more specifically. This table on the north side is called the, sh- the shulchan, the shulchan, the table. Notice that first letter, sh, it's the letter sheen. And on the south side is the menorah, which just so happens to begin with the letter mem. And so once again, we see God's name spelled out, shim. But this is a little more hidden. The outer court with the altar and the labor, Out in the open, everybody can walk in and see. Everyone's invited. But inside here, only the priests get to come in. But again, we find God's shim. But we find something else as well. You can look up these words for yourself later. But on the table was the lechem panim, the bread. Lechem begins with lamed. On the incense altar, the golden altar, went the ketoret, which begins the letter kof. And then from the menorah went forth or light. The table was for lechem. The golden altar was for ketoret. And the menorah was for or light. You take these three letters. They don't spell anything that I've been able to find. But their numerical values add up. They're 130 and 1. So they equal 100. 31. And 131 is the numerical value of the word apaim, which means face. Sometimes this word is translated other ways, but in Genesis 19.6, where we read, I'm sorry, 19.1, we read about the angels going to Sodom. And when Lot saw them, it says he went, he bowed down, he fell on his apaim, on his face. And um, so inside, as we go in closer to God, we learn more about his name, more deeply. But we begin to see his face. In fact, the shulchan is what was put on what was called the lechem panim, the bread of faces, the bread of faces. So uh, we're drawing closer, beginning to, to get some gleamers of God's face, of what he truly looks like, not physically, but what his glory is like. This is where I normally pause and say, are there any questions? I'm sure there's thousands, but you'll just have to text me or email me with them. 
Now in here in the, in the Holy of Holies, we find the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. And the Hebrew word for Ark, I find this interesting, is the word Aaron. Aleph, Resh, Vav, Nun. Aaron. And if you take that word and spell it backwards, it's the word Nora, which means awesome. Uh, you know, we, we sing the Mikamoka, uh, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods. Uh, and uh, it, it, there's that phrase in there, Nora Tafilot, awesome in praise. And that's the word Nora. So um, when you come into the Holy of Holies, you begin to experience God's awesomeness. But awesome doesn't mean what, how we usually use it, like, oh, that's so cool, oh, that's so rad, that's so awesome. Awesome means awe. Awe is fear. But it's the kind of fear that makes you feel small because you realize you're in the presence of something so utterly great, so utterly holy, <clears throat> so utterly magnificent and beautiful. And that's what we should experience as we learn to enter into stillness with God. A real sense of awe. So Aaron, Ark, spelled backwards, is Nora, awesome. Now, there's one thing that is always left out of diagrams of the tabernacle that was in there. And I don't think I've seen a diagram yet that has this one other thing. And it was, we're not quite sure where it was. I'm just going to put it over here. And that's my little symbol for a Torah scroll. Because in Deuteronomy 31.26, God tells Moses, and Moses passes it on to the people, take this book of the Torah and put it Mitzad beside or by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of Adonai your God. The book of the Torah. Now some rabbis think maybe they, they made a shelf that went on the side of the Ark and they could put the Torah scroll, the completed five books of Moses there. Um, some believe there might have been a, a table put there. There are others, including the Rambam, uh, Ramban, uh, Moses' uh, Rabbi Nachmanides, who said, no, they put it inside the ark next to the tablets. So it's to the side of the tablets. So there's this ongoing controversy, but wherever it was put, it was in there right with, inside, or next to the ark of the covenant itself. What I find interesting is through the scriptures, we often hear the Torah referred to as Moses. In uh, Acts chapter 15, I think it is, we uh, find the Jerusalem Council and James, the brother of Yeshua, says that Moses is read every Shabbat in the synagogues, meaning the Torah is read. Well, what's interesting is this book of the Torah was placed there in the Holy of Holies almost the same time that Moses died. It's like the physical Moses passes away, but the Torah, Moses the Torah, is now in the Holy of Holies. Maybe physically he did not get to cross Jordan of the Promised Land, but in a spiritual sense, he wound up in the Holy of Holies. So anyways, a little stretch, but something to think about. The reason I bring this up is because this 
word for book is the word sefer. And many times the Torah is referred to as a sefer Torah. And a, a man who is ordained to write out Torah scrolls is called a sofer because he writes the sefer. And the word sefer, which is Samic Pei Resh, has a numerical value of 60 plus 80 plus 200. When you add that together, you get the number 340, which just so happens to be the numerical value of when you add Sheen and Mim together, Shim, fire and water, the name of God. Because Sheen equals 300 and Mim equals 40. So here we find the fire of God. We find the name of God in the scroll of the Torah. And this is how we access his name, his glory, and his essence today. By delving into this book continually. And this book of the Torah shall not depart out of your mouth. You're always to be talking about it, meditating on it, thinking about it, discussing it. The rabbis say if two people sit together to eat and words of Torah do not pass between them, they're worse than infidels. That's a conviction. In other words, the Torah is our spiritual food and it's more important than physical food. I can afford to miss a few meals. I can't afford to miss any meals when it comes to this because my life essence my spirit is fed through this, and my spirit is what is expressed out in my body. And if my spirit is not fed, my spirit and body go out of balance, and what's expressed out here can get ugly. So we need to feed upon the Sefer Torah. You know, there are a couple places in Scripture where someone, a prophet is given a scroll and told to eat it, and it's sweet as honey. So anyways, we need to feed upon God's word. There's a, a verse here that I just happened to think about this week. Someone quoted it. In fact, it was just, uh, just yesterday morning. I was visiting a, a Christian school in our neighborhood, and one of the students shared a devotional and quoted this verse. And I thought, I've got to include that in the teaching. Hebrews 6, verses 19 and 20. I love this. Now picture this. Now you know what the tabernacle looks like. You know what that map of the tabernacle is. It says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Anchor of the soul. So your soul, your mind, will, and emotions has to have an anchor. What's the purpose of an anchor? If you're on a boat, you have a rope tied to the boat. The other end's tied to an anchor. You drop it overboard. That anchor goes down into the invisible, to the depths of the water, and it anchors into the sandy bottom or onto a rock, and now your boat is not going to move. The waters can move, but you are going to be anchored and you're going to stay put. You're not going to be washed to and fro by the movement of the water. Well, our soul needs an anchor as well. But our soul, being spiritual, needs a spiritual anchor. What is the anchor of the soul? A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Our souls need to be anchored here in the Holy of Holies, but in the Holy of Holies above. Uh, that is the original for this, the original pattern for this tabernacle. We need to have an anchor that enters in behind the veil. 
the inner place behind the curtain, where Yeshua has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The earthly high priest got to go into the Holy of Holies once a year, one day a year on Yom Kippur. But Yeshua has gone into the Holy of Holies to stay, at least until he returns. And he's always there making intercession for us. And when he died, God tore the veil of the temple on earth in half from top to bottom bottom as a picture to tell us, okay, up until now you weren't welcome into this place. But now through the, the blood of my son, Yeshua, a path has been made for you. I'm open for business. All comers are, are welcome. And so we really want to have intense, deep, intimate fellowship with Yeshua. We have to go to the place where our hope is placed, behind the veil, in that most holy place, that inner place. In one of my trips to Israel, we were uh, on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, and I forget what the building was, but I was walking past and I, I was struck because they had discovered a lot of first century boat anchors in, in the Sea of Galilee, and they put them on display there. And I was struck when I saw these, and I made a note of it, because uh, the first century anchors didn't look like the anchors like Popeye had tattooed on his arm. They, they looked like this. There's what a first century anchor looked like. It was just a big rock with a hole in it. You see the significance of that? Who is our rock? Yeshua. And he's been pierced. So what a beautiful picture we have. This world's going to be going through more shakings. I know everybody's taking a breath, thinking, oh, the pandemic's over, things are going back to normal. This is just a little bit of a breath before the next labor pain. And the shaking's going to get more intense and more severe. But I'm determined not to be shaken. I'm determined to have my soul anchored in an unshakable place because I have a hope that enters behind the veil and enters in to where Yeshua is right now. And this is a very real thing to me. And as long as I maintain this and keep my head straight, and if you do, we're not going to be shaken at all. We can be like those in Psalm 91. It says, Though a thousand fall at your side, ten thousand at your right side, they shall not come near to you. You'll peer out with your eyes. You'll be able to watch, but you're in a safe place. So, keep the picture of the anchor in mind all the time. You know, as my time is starting to run out, there's one thing we haven't done yet. We haven't spelled out the word for fire. So there it is. Fire is spelled Aleph Shin. Aleph equals one. It's the first letter of the alphabet. And Shin, as we've seen, is 300. So if we add these together, fire, Aish, equals 301. 
And water, if we spell it out, mem yud mem, 40 plus 10 plus 40. Add that together, if my math is right, it equals 90. So if you add those together, we get the total of 391. Spelling out fire completely and mayim, water completely, ash and mayim, a total of 391. Why is this significant? This happens to be the numerical value of Yahashua or Joshua. Yeshua. Yeshua's name is Joshua. He's our anchor of the soul. And he is in the Holy of Holies not made with hands. He's in the, the heavenly Holy of Holies. And that's where our hope is anchored. And there we see his shim, his name, the fire and water and peace, and our Messiah. You just can't make this stuff up, can you? A final thought. Actually, I have two final thoughts. I'll make that an S. Final thoughts. First of all, going back to Genesis 2.9, And out of the ground Adonai Elohim made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. But there are two special trees. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They're both in the midst of the garden. And the rabbis tell us that their root systems were intermingled and they actually maybe even shared the same trunk. These two, two trees are completely intermingled with one another. And we tend to think of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as being a bad tree. It was a bad tree. Everything God made was good. He looked at everything he made, it was good, including the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What was bad is that man stole from God. He was told, don't eat from that tree. And I think in God's mind, he was saying, don't eat from that tree yet. It's not time. But they decided that's the one tree they wanted to eat from. What was bad was their rebellion, their sin, their, their self-centeredness. There's nothing wrong with the tree. But these two trees dwell there in the middle of the garden. And we know that because they ate of this second tree when they shouldn't have, that's how sin came into the world and death. Now, we spoke a couple weeks ago about how when God evicted Adam and Eve, they went out the, the exit of the garden to the east. That's where the, the gate to the garden was, just like the entrance of the tabernacles to the east. And he put two cherubim to guard the way back into the garden with a, the flaming sword, the turning sword. And as you make your way into the tabernacle, you come to the veil with cherubim. I picture two cherubim there, blocking the way in the Holy of Holies, where the tree of life is, because the Torah is a tree of life to all those who grasp it. And so the very source of life is in that Holy of Holies where God's presence is. But when Yeshua died, that veil was torn in half. The cherubim more or less stepped aside. And now we have access. So one of the things you have to be careful of is this. We have to realize that the tree of life is there, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is as well. Because the Torah has life-giving truth in it 
but it also has the knowledge of good and evil. If I want to know what's good and what's bad, I look in the Torah. It tells me what's good. It tells me what's bad. It tells me what God likes. It tells me what he hates. So we find both in the Torah. But the rabbis tell us, let me read a quote to you from Rabbi Joshua ben Levi, who lived in uh, the early part of the 3rd century, early 300s, I think it was. He says, if the one who receives it is deserving, then the Torah becomes a life-giving medicine. If, however, the person is not deserving, then it becomes a poison, literally a drug of death. And I have found people who've come to God's word and they just light up with life. Their lives are transformed. And I find other people who come to God's word, people call themselves believers, and they use it as an instrument of death to wound and kill their brothers and sisters, to condemn other people, to elevate their own ego and pride. And uh, it's poison and it's ugly. And when you meet someone who doesn't want anything to do with God or with Christianity or anything has to do with spiritual things, they'll say, oh, I know Christians, I know Messianic believers, and I can't stand them the way they treat each other, the way they've treated me. Instead of experiencing Torah as, as something that has living fruit on it, they've experienced it as a drug of death. We need to be very careful how we use the Torah because fire and water are both very dangerous if they're mishandled. So here's the, the closing thought. Let's go to the very end of Exodus, the last chapter, chapter 40, and the last couple of verses. Well, let's start with verse 33. It says, He, Moses, erected the courtyard all around the tabernacle and the altar, and he emplaced the curtain of the gate of the courtyard, so Moses completed all the work. The tabernacle is put together completely and totally. The cloud, the anun, covered the tent of meeting. What's a cloud made of? Water vapor. Now, don't think of this cloud as smoke. The first time you find cloud, the first several times you find cloud in the Bible, is always clouds. Like you look up in the sky, it's clouds, it's water. And those clouds weigh tons. There's a lot of water in those clouds. The cloud covered the tent of meeting. The glory of Adonai filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting, for the cloud rested upon it. And the glory of Adonai filled the tabernacle. When the cloud was raised up from the tabernacle, the children of Israel would embark on all their journeys. If the cloud did not rise up, they would not embark until the day it rose up. And <clears throat> here's the last verse of Exodus. For the cloud of Adonai would be on the tabernacle by day, and fire would be on it at night, before the eyes of all the house of Israel throughout their journeys. And again, we see fire and water resting on the tabernacle. The water by day, and the fire by night. So, uh, you just can't get away from all this, can you? It's just... Uh, Mind-blowing. I have a couple guests here. One of them's going like that. So. so anyways, my brain's doing the same thing. Um, we could go on. We're not. Because I think I've gone sufficiently over time. So our questions for discussion. 
Try to think of other occasions where we find fire and water together in the scriptures. And uh, hopefully you'll be able to come, come up with some more. I know you'll be looking for them after this teaching. Second, think about the cleansing work God has done in your own life. How has he cleansed you spiritually? And if it's appropriate to share with a group, think, share how God brought fire into your life to bring an inner cleansing to you, a life-changing cleansing. Discuss Hebrews 6, verses 19 and 20. Compare a physical anchor with a spiritual anchor of the soul. And really ponder this. We went over it quickly, but take time to discuss it, because I know those of you there in your group will have other insights, so please share them with the rest. And then number four, discuss how God's word can be used for life and how it can be used to do harm. And uh, let's all resolve to never use God's word to harm another, but to bring life to them. So let's close in prayer. Our Father and King, thank you so much for the wonder of your Torah, for the beauty of your truth, for the balance and the shalom of your water and your fire, of the physical and the spiritual. And how in these, as we engage them, your shim, your name is proclaimed. So, Father, let us be careful not to misspell your name by not living out in our actions and our deeds and our words the essence of who you are. And we praise you for our Messiah who came to show us what your life, what life lived for you can look like. Make us those kinds of people, we ask in Yeshua's name. Amen.